Good day. Welcome to another episode of the Audible Local Ledger Reads to the Blind podcast. You can get more information at audiblelocalledger.org. Stay tuned for today's reading. Hi, my name's Eric. I'll be reading you selections from today's e-edition of the Cape Cod Times. Today's date is Tuesday, October 31st of 2023, and a very happy Halloween to all. To get with the weather, most important on a Halloween evening for the trick-or-treaters, today, high of 51, chilly out there, some sun, and then it gets cloudy and cooler later in the afternoon. Tonight, it'll be overcast, might have a little rain, but that'll come later, so the early trick-or-treaters should be able to get in and get their sweets before the rain comes along. Uh, The low in the overnight is 41 degrees, so again, a little chilly, it's getting down there now. On Wednesday... Tomorrow, we're looking for occasional rain with a high of 48 and a low of 32. On Thursday, plenty of sun, high of 51 and a low of 53. Friday rounds out our forecast, high of 61, low of 46, so it warms up a little later in the week, but we got some chilly weather for the next couple days. Mostly sunny, breezy, and pleasant on Friday. High of 61, low of 46 in the overnight across the Cape and Islands. And on Saturday, sun and areas of high clouds. Pleasant weather. Saturday, beautiful day. High of 63, low of 50. Perfect fall weather. Now today, the sunrise was at 7.11 a.m. It will set at 5.37 p.m. And we'll have 10 hours, 26 minutes of daylight. Heading to the front of the paper, where the lottery results and our news reports are kept. And we read the lottery results because somebody asked for them. If there's something you would like read to the blind or those who are print disabled, you can email us at info at audiblelocalledger.org or call us at 508-539-2030. That's 508 508- Five three nine two zero three zero, and we'll consider reading it. And if you miss any of the information that we share in our readings, you can always go to audiblelocalledger.org, and in the upper right corner is the archived readings tab. Click on that, you'll find a week's worth of our newspaper readings you can catch up on, as well as a wide variety of periodicals and literature that stay up there for your listening enjoyment. And all of that is free for the blind and the print disabled at audiblelocalledger.org, the archived readings tab, and the literature tab. Now, for the latest results, we go to MassLottery.com's website because the Cape Cod Times goes to press too early to give you the latest results, and if you asked for them, you certainly deserve them. For the numbers game of Monday, October 30th, in the midday drawing, those numbers were 8994. Again, yesterday's midday drawing numbers game results, 8994. In the evening drawing, the numbers were 4198. Last night's numbers game results for Monday, October 30th, 4198. Powerball results for last night, Monday, October 30th, 192234. 66, and 69, with 5, the bonus number. Mass cash results for last night, Monday, October 30th. 4, 5, 6, 13, 
and 34. And Lucky for Life rounds out our lottery results for Monday, October 30th of 2023. Those results last night were 3, 6, 12, 14, and 17, with 18 the bonus number. Good luck to all who play. Remember us if you win. Now heading to the news, which is based on the front page, the local news, we have... A headline that reads, There's nothing like this on the Outer Cape. Three Wealth Fleet Ocean Beaches could connect to the internet by July of 2024. This is written by Denise Coffey in Wellfleet. Between McGuire Landing at LeCount Hollow and Cahoon Hollow Beach lie two miles of what's usually sandy paradise for thousands of summer visitors. What it doesn't have is internet connection or reliable cell phone service, and that has been a public safety concern for officials and beachgoers for years. When Arthur Medici was attacked and killed by a great white shark in 2018, someone had to run to the parking lot to get a call through to 911. A town committee hopes to change all that before the start of next year's summer season. The four members of the Cable, Internet, and Cellular Services Advisory Committee are working on a plan to bring a fiber-optic connection to McGuire Landing at LeCount Hollow and Whitecrest and Cahoon Hollow beaches. There's nothing like this on the Outer Cape, committee member Josh Yeston said at the October 17th committee meeting. It'll be a flagship for how we deploy a larger public safety net on the beaches. The three beaches targeted first for the project are owned and operated by the town of Wellfleet, but part of a miles-long stretch of ocean beaches from Provincetown to Chatham. How would the service work? The hard optic lines would allow people to use Wi-Fi rather than cell towers to make calls. It'd enable better communications with police and fire departments, and it could help with dark spots in cell phone service, those areas where calls are dropped without warning. Yeston, Stephen Kopitz, Larry Marshall, and Heather Doyle make up the advisory committee, which was reconstituted in March. By early April, the committee had prepared a grant proposal for town administration, which was awarded in July. Since then, the all-volunteer committee has been working to find the right approach to the project. So why is it difficult to get cell phone service to the Outer Cape beaches, the subheading asks. Copitz called the project basic but with plenty of wrinkles. Decisions still need to be made about the necessary infrastructure, potential partners, and the associated services. How should a fiber optic line be brought out to the beaches? What would long-term maintenance and contingency costs be? Even details like Wi-Fi receiver durability have to be considered. Conditions on the beaches can be harsh, especially in the winter. The scour coming off the beach can take the paint right off a car, Copit said, so we need equipment that'll hold up. There's a lot of work ahead of them, but the committee's optimistic. We think this is going to be a unique contribution to Wellfleet, Copitz said, but we have to bring it in on time, on budget, and then ensure that it's working properly. Well, what about Newcomb Hollow Beach? Might there be other applications that can tie into the network in the future? Is there a possibility to connect properties along Ocean Drive? Might the town be able to connect to Bayside beaches eventually? Additional funds for internet projects will soon be available through the Massachusetts Broadband Institute, providing new opportunities for Wellfleet and other Massachusetts municipalities. Identifying and securing funding for these initiatives is a mandate of the committee.
As soon as we finish our current project, we'd love to bring fiber optic cable to Newcomb Hollow, our fourth beach, and the site of the Great White Attack on Medici, Kopitz said. Who's working on the Wellfleet Committee? Doyle has been working to make the beaches safer since Medici's death. She helped establish the Cape Cod Ocean Community, which is a nonprofit whose goal is to use technology to keep beachgoers safe from sharks. Doyle is also a member of the Cape Cod Technology Council Board of Directors. It was there she learned about a state municipal fiber grant program that helps municipalities build and or complete a municipal fiber network. Soon after, she helped establish the committee and actively sought out members. The committee grew organically from there, she said. Yestin brought his entrepreneurial and financial background to the group, Marshall, a retired academic, and Kopitz, who has decades of investment banking and consulting experience, also joined. In just eight months, the members applied for and received the $200,000 grant. They've spoken with Bourne and Shutesbury town officials about how they used similar grant funds. For Wellfleet to get $200,000 to do something on the beaches is huge, Doyle said. The committee's talking to potential project partners, including Open Cape, which has a fiber backbone running along Route 6. Committee members are discussing the milestones they'd have to hit along the way to get the project completed in time, including due dates for physical plans, permitting, and ordering equipment. Denise Coffey writes about business and tourism. You can contact her at dcoffee, that's D-C-O-F-F-E-Y, at capecodonline.com. Machine gun range cost at Cape Base is over budget by Walker Armstrong. Two bids received by the Massachusetts Army National Guard for a proposed automated multi-purpose machine gun practice range at Camp Edwards were around $6 million over the initial $8.9 million estimated cost, according to documents that were obtained by the Cape Cod Times. Joint Base Cape Cod officials weren't able to comment on Friday, a spokesman said. The significant, quote-unquote, additional cost leaves base officials in a tough position in terms of their ability to secure money for the project, Andrew Gottlieb, who's executive director for the Association to Preserve Cape Cod, said. It's huge, Gottlieb said of the $6 million price differential. Our concern, first and foremost, is if they have $9 million to spend and they have a price tag of $15 million for what they wanted to buy, then obviously to proceed, they need to get that money from somewhere. The Massachusetts Army National Guard could potentially seek more money from Congress, Gottlieb said. No additional funding has been authorized for the proposed machine gun range in the fiscal 2024 Military Construction, Veterans Affairs, and Related Agencies Appropriations Bill. According to Chris Matthews, who's a spokesman for U.S. Representative William Keating, our Democrat from Massachusetts, Keating's office has not been approached by anyone from the base about the matter, Matthews said. WES Construction Corporation of Halifax made a final bid of $15.458 million on the project, and our Zoppo Corp of Stoughton made a final bid of $15.554 million. A machine gun practice range is needed, the Army National Guard says. Joint Base Cape Cod sits on state-owned land, about 30 square miles in total, and it includes five military commands, bases, and stations, which include the U.S. Army, the U.S. Air Force, and the U.S. Coast Guard. 
The National Guard, a U.S. Army installation, is at Camp Edwards, which is described by the Guard as the region's largest training area. On June 22nd, the Army National Guard issued a request for proposals for a multi-purpose machine gun range estimated at $8.9 million, according to the released notice. The final bids were due July 17th. The machine gun range is needed because the Army National Guard soldiers need to comply with U.S. Army qualification standards that have been updated, including no more paper targets, according to Army National Guard spokesperson Don Veach. The machine gun range is also needed, Veach said, because there's no other place in the state that prioritizes Army National Guard training. The Association to Preserve Cape Cod sends a letter in September. In September, Gottlieb sent a letter to a delegation of U.S. lawmakers for Massachusetts, including Keating and Senator Elizabeth Warren, Democrat from Massachusetts, and Senator Edward Markey, also a Democrat from Massachusetts, expressing his unhappiness with the prospect of the Army National Guard asking for more money for the project, as well as the National Guard's efforts to move forward with the project despite not yet having approval from the EPA or the Environmental Protection Agency. Our request to the congressional delegation is that Congress not either authorize more money to add to the amount that they previously authorized in order to get to the bid price, Gottlieb said, or, and this is equally important, not allow money that had been previously authorized for some other project to be reprogrammed to make up the deficit for this project. The EPA issued a draft determination in April that stated the machine gun range has the potential to contaminate Cape Cod's sole source aquifer, upon which the base is located, and create potential health risks to the surrounding communities. There has been no final EPA determination or decision at this time, Gottlieb said. Base officials gave updates on base operations to the Mashpee Select Board. During a September 26th Mashpee Select Board meeting, a group of Joint Base officials updated the board on various aspects of the board's and base's operations, including a brief comment on the machine gun range. Colonel Matt Porter, operations manager for Joint Base Cape Cod, did not mention the $6 million price differential of the two bids that the base received. He said the base hopes to begin talks with the EPA regarding the draft determination to move forward with the project. It's our hope that we'll enter into some sort of negotiations in order to mitigate some of the concerns EPA officials have with the range, and then incorporate that into design or into the range planning, and then move forward from there, Porter said in the September meeting. At this point, we haven't entered that trajectory yet. Keeping it local on page two, Turkey Drives and Thanksgiving Donations on Cape Cod by Frankie Rowley. While you're confirming plans and preparing table settings and menus for Thanksgiving, consider adding an extra turkey or a gift card to your grocery list. A variety of organizations across the Cape are hosting food drives for their Thanksgiving delivery days. The Community Action Committee of Cape Cod and the Islands and St. Mary's Episcopal Church in Barnstable have been handing out turkeys for a few years. Food insecurity has been around for a long time, Carol Ann Procaccini, Director of Client Self-Sufficiency and Compliance at the Community Action Committee, said, between rent, utilities, food, it's something that doesn't seem to go away. 
For the last 15 years, the two organizations have delivered Thanksgiving meals to families on Cape Cod with donations from their Thanksgiving Turkeys for Cape Codders event. This year, they plan to offer grocery store gift cards alongside the iconic bird to families in need. It's very gratifying to see smiling faces and many thank yous when we hand someone a turkey and a gift card, Procaccini said. All the community members that come out to help with the curbside pickups are engaged. They know this is a good thing to do. They get that satisfaction of doing it. Donations are being taken until November 9th. Gift card donations can be dropped off between 8 a.m. and 3.30 p.m. at the Community Action Committee, which is located at 372 North Street in Hyannis. For monetary donations, you can visit www.caci.org and then fill out the Thanksgiving commitment form or fill out a check to C-A-C-C-I, Thanksgiving at C-A-C-C-I, 88 North Street, Hyannis, 02601. What's often easier, and of course, if you're looking to ask to receive a turkey, you can use your phone, and many of our listeners obviously prefer that. You can call 508-771-1727, extension 117, in order to register to receive a turkey. Again, that number is 508 771 1727, extension 117. Turkeys will be handed out during a curbside pickup event on November 18th. Some Thanksgiving events on Cape Cod, the Family Pantry of Cape Cod in Harwich. The Family Pantry of Cape Cod's collecting turkeys for Thanksgiving meal donations. The pantry expects to send 1,100 turkey dinners to members of the pantry this year, and it has received 650 so far, according to Executive Director Christine Menard. With 150 birds bought by the pantry, they're hoping to raise the remaining 300 through community donations. Any donations of frozen turkeys can be dropped off during donation hours from 8 a.m. to 3.30 p.m. on Tuesday and Thursday at 1.30 33 Queen Anne Road in Harwich. That's from 8 a.m. to 3.30 p.m. on Tuesday and Thursday at 133 Queen Anne Road in Harwich. The Lower Cape Outreach Council in Orleans has a turkey drive from 11 a.m. to 2 p.m. on November 11th. It's sponsored by and hosted at The Farm. If you have other Thanksgiving staples besides turkey, bring those along too because all donations are accepted. And from there, donations will go to families in need during their Thanksgiving meal program from November 16th to 18th. To sign up for a Thanksgiving meal from the LCOC, visit one of their nine emergency food pantries. The group helps residents in the Lower and Outer Cape, from Brewster to Provincetown. The farm is located at 40 Rock Harbor Road in Orleans, The Lower Cape Outreach Council is located at 19 Brewster Cross Road in Orleans. The Elder Services of Cape Cod and the Islands in Falmouth, Dennis, and Provincetown. The Elder Services of Cape Cod and the Islands is hosting three Thanksgiving grab-and-go events, providing free meals to Barnstable County residents aged 60 and older. 
Meal sign-up is already filled for their November 20th event at the Falmouth Senior Center. However, meals are still available for reservation for their event on November 21st. Meal collections will take place from 10 a.m. to noon at the Elder Services of Cape Cod and the Islands and from noon and 1 p.m. at the Provincetown Council on Aging. Reservations to receive these meals must be filed before November 16th, and they can be made by calling the Nutrition Department at 508-394-4630, extension 412, between 8 and 10.30 a.m. Again, to make a reservation to receive those meals, you have to do it before November 16th, and you have to do it by calling the nutrition department between 8 and 10.30 a.m. at 508-394-4630, extension 412. Elder Services of Cape Cod is located at 68 Route 134 in South Dennis. The Provincetown Council on Aging is located at 2 Mayflower Place in Provincetown. The Falmouth Service Center's annual turkey drop-off day is from 11 a.m. to 2 p.m. on November 19th. Frozen turkeys between 10 and 18 pounds can be dropped off at the center located at 611 Gifford Street in Falmouth. And finally, the Salvation Army in Hyannis is also taking turkey donations. You can call 508-775-0364 for help with donations. Again, 508-775-0364 for helping with donations. The Salvation Army is located at 100 North Street in Hyannis. Keeping it local, we're in the Cape and Islands section. I did really live my dream, reads the headline. Montano's Restaurant Owner Looks to Sell, by Heather McCarran. Growing up in an Italian-American household, Robert Montano, chef-owner of Montano's Restaurant in North Truro, has always known the deep connections between family and food. Both my grandmothers and my mom were always cooking, said Montano, whose earliest memories center around the kitchen, especially the preparation of made-from-scratch pastas and gravies that required many hands. On Sundays, there'd be cavatelli all over the kitchen that they would make. My dad and I would sit there and overeat, of course. Every Sunday, there was lunch at 2 p.m. It's the story of so many Italian-Americans, he said, and one that he's shared with the Outer Cape community for 35 years. At the restaurant, he's nourished a family, his staff, and continued the tradition of gathering staff members in the kitchen to churn out homemade pastas daily. Now Montano is looking to pass the pasta-making and running the restaurant on to someone new, just as the tradition of meal preparation and feeding others was passed on to him, by his parents and his Neapolitan and Sicilian grandparents. The popular restaurant, sitting on four acres and with 6,300 square feet of space, is for sale. Listed with commercial real estate agent Richard Catania of the Realty Advisory, Inc. in Centerville. It's a 188-seat restaurant and has ample parking, and it's considered to be within the National Seashore, he said. He's hopeful somebody will come along and buy it as is. It's already a successful business with an established clientele, he said. 
Just as it takes some time to perfectly roast a plate of vegetables or to simmer a savory tomato sauce so the flavors meld just so, Montanot said he's not in a hurry and he's not looking to see the restaurant close down. He'll wait for the right buyer. It's not a fire sale. It's nothing like that, he said. I love what I do, but after 35 years, it's just time to do something new. Adrian Sear, a local resident and has also sourced ingredients for the restaurant, said Montenot has been just a great local. He pulled the town through the pandemic, Sear said, explaining how Montenot's kept its extended family, the customers, fed with takeout meals and kept the staff working. Sear described Montenot's as an institution in the town, one that also attracts other restaurateurs to come dine, and he hopes to see it continue as such. How did Montenot's get started? Montano and his wife Dawn, who met when he was a kitchen manager and line cook, she was a hostess at a Seekonk restaurant, bought what's now Montano's in 1988. I was only 26 and she was only 23, he said. He was working on a fishing boat at the time, he recounted, and knew the restaurant, formerly Captain Josie's, was for sale. It was a perfect opportunity to put his experience of cooking at home with and for his family and his later training as a chef at Johnson & Wales University, to work. So I took a shot, he said. It was a big step up for the Connecticut-raised chef, whose first culinary creations included helping make pasta on Sundays, making grilled cheese sandwiches for his dad, dolling up frozen pizza to make it taste better, and later cleaning buckets of squid for a restaurant. The couple took over the restaurant July 21st of 1988 and lived upstairs for seven years, a space now given over to staff housing. It's all about family at Montano's. Montano speaks highly of his staff, who he sees as members of the family. They're the ones that have really been part of the success, he said. It's never really about me out there. Keeping that family feeling intact is Montano's goal as he looks to move on from the restaurant. If I could choose the perfect buyer, it'd be someone who wants to keep that family feeling, to keep the continuity of the staff going and keep the continuity of the customers and of the town, Montano said. It's a family. They gotta love it. He said he's had a couple of potential buyers come take a look recently, but there are no deals yet. He'll stick around for as long as it takes. I did really live my dream. It's going to be very hard for me, but I know it is time, Montano said. And what's next? He isn't sure, he said, but I think I'd like to go to Italy and just figure it out. There is a photo. We don't usually do photo descriptions in our readings because we're not um, trained in it, and it does take a certain amount of training to uh, recount or interpret um, what we're seeing to our um, blind and print-disabled people. But in this case, it's a pretty easy photo to describe. There is 18 chairs that were set up on Monday in front of the Federated Church of Orleans. These are folding chairs with blue um, seat covers. 18 chairs have been set up Monday in front of the Federated Church of Orleans with each representing one of the mass shooting victims in Lewiston, Maine. Gunmen opened fire Wednesday night at a bowling alley in a restaurant in Lewiston. The body of the suspected gunman was found on Friday. He died of an apparent self-inflicted gunshot wound, according to authorities. And there are nine chairs on each side, each arranged in a semicircle, sitting 
out in front of the Federated Church. The final story in the Cape and Islands, Massachusetts will host work authorization clinic for migrants by Zane Razak. Massachusetts officials will host a work authorization clinic for migrants staying in emergency family shelters during the week of November 13th. The state will organize appointments and provide transportation from shelters to the clinic, which is set to take place in Middlesex County, a press release from Governor Maura Healy's office said. This clinic will be critical for building on the work that our administration has already been leading to connect more migrants with work opportunities, which will help them support their families and move out of emergency shelters into more stable housing options, said Healy in a statement. The Healy-Driscoll administration will partner with the U.S. Department of Homeland Security, which will help collect and process work authorizations to host the clinic. Many shelter residents want to work, but they face significant barriers to getting their work authorizations, said Healy. The clinic will build on several programs currently operated by the state to give legal assistance to families and to help shelter residents start working. The programs include Immigrant Assistance Services, which helps with case management and work authorization, asylum, and temporary protected status applications, and Resettlement Agencies Services, which focuses on new arrivals who can immediately apply for work authorization. About 23,000 people are enrolled in the Emergency Housing Assistance Shelter System, according to Healy. From November 1st, the state has said it will no longer expand the number of shelter units. We are at the midway portion of our reading. It's at this stage, regular listeners are certainly aware, I'm sure, that we move to a different kind of local news, the obituaries, death notices, and memorials. There are three obituaries in today's Cape Cod Times, dated Tuesday, October 31st of 2023. The first is of John F. Duke Sr. of West Harwich. John F. Duke Sr. is pain-free and hitting the links in everlasting life after his recent cancer battles. He passed on October 28th at the age of 83 with loving care at his Cape Cod home in West Harwich. John Duke, known as Jack to many, was born in Worcester on June 17, 1940. He graduated from St. John's High School in 58 and went on to graduate with a B.S. in education in 62, completing his master's in 1966 in education from Worcester State College. He married his lifelong love, the late Francis E. Sullivan Duke, on July 17, 1965 at St. Mary's Church in Shrewsbury. We believe he's now dancing again with her in heaven, like they did on their first date at the Bancroft Club in 1963. John was a devoted educator, husband, and patriarch. He taught for over 40 years at South High Community School. He led the math team and was a loyal fan for South High women's basketball. He reliably gave his time to St. Mary's Church in Holden and led a life of faith. His love and devotion to his wife and children was on full display at family gatherings. Affectionately known as Pop Pop, he cherished his grandchildren and great-grandchildren by always providing big hugs, smiles, and Sunday school ice cream. Holding love in their hearts for John are many. 
With everlasting joy in heaven, he's reunited with his parents, his siblings, and his wife. The family appreciates the special care and guidance given by his doctors and care providers from Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in Boston, the Broad Reach Hospice in Chatham, and Seaside Home Care on the Cape. Family and friends will honor and remember John's life by gathering for calling hours at Chapman Funeral Home on 678 Main Street in Harwich on Friday, November 3rd, from 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. A Mass will be celebrated on Saturday at 11 a.m. at Holy Trinity Church on 246 Main Street in West Harwich, and the burial will be in Island Pond Cemetery in Harwich. As a mark in his memory, donations can be made out to the John and Fran Duke Scholarship Fund that provides support to college-bound high school graduates from Worcester, Holden, and West Harwich. They can be made at greaterworcester.org forward slash scholarships forward slash John and Fran Dukes Scholarship, or they can be mailed to the Greater Worcester Community Foundation, 370 Main Street, Suite 650, Worcester, Mass. 01608. The next obituary in the Cape Cod Times of October 31st is of Barbara Ann Hutton Kiley of Marston's Mills, who passed peacefully at the age of 89. Barbara was born in Swamscott and shared her birthday of October 21st, 1934, with her beloved identical twin, Beverly Beliveau, and her loving husband of 66 years, Tom. Barbara was a beautiful person, both inside and out. She loved living on the Cape for almost three decades and always enjoyed rides along the coastline. She was thankful for the simple things in life. Above all, she loved her family and took tremendous pride and interest in all aspects of their everyday stories. She's survived by her husband and many who will miss her dearly. Visiting hours will be held on Thursday, November 2nd, that's this Thursday, from 4 to 7 p.m. in the Chapman Funeral and Cremations, John Lawrence Chapel, 3778 Falmouth Road in Marston's Mills. A graveside service will be held on Friday at 1045 at the Massachusetts National Cemetery on Connery Ave in Bourne. Any donations in Barbara's memory may be made to the MSPCA at 1577 Falmouth Road in Centerville, Mass, 02632. The final obituary in today's Cape Cod Times of October 31st is of Alan Stewart McEckern of Valdosta, Georgia, who at the age of 83 passed on October 26th. He was born December 23, 1939 in Brockton. He was the owner and operator of Awnings by Peterson. Allen was a private pilot and had a love for flying. He was also an antique auto enthusiast and was a club member and past president of AACA of Fort Lauderdale and a past master of Paul Revere Lodge in Brockton. He loved his greyhounds as well. Survivors include his wife of 60 years, Joan McEckern of Valdosta, Georgia, as well as many others on the Cape who will miss him. Per his wishes, he will be cremated with no formal services. Family and friends are invited to share memories and sign an online guest book at musicfuneralservices.com.
And that concludes the obituaries and death notices listed in today's e-edition of the Cape Cod Times that's dated Tuesday, October 31st of 2023. Our final local story will be from the sports section. It's getting down into playoffs for the MIAA high school football season. So here are the playoff matchups for divisions one through eight. This is reported by Courtney Jacobs. The Massachusetts Interscholastic Athletic Association, known as the MIAA, announced the high school football playoff field on Sunday. Five Cape Cod high schools, Barnstable, Dennis Yarmouth, Sandwich, Bourne, and Mashpee made the field. Barnstable and Mashpee will host a home game, while the other three teams will take a road trip to start their postseason. Last season, all three playoff teams, Falmouth, Sandwich, and Mashpee, lost their first round of playoff games. These five teams will look to make sure that doesn't happen this season. Here are the statewide fields for Divisions 1 through 8, the locations where Cape teams will play, and a few non-playoff matchups. In Division 1, the whole field. Okay, so these are going to be a long list, folks. And again, you can always go to audiblelocalledger.org, the archived readings tab, if you want to uh, hear this, if you miss anything. But Division 1, this is the big guys in MIAA. St. John's Prep, which is 8-0 and a powerhouse. Zaverian Brothers is number two. Needham is number three. Andover is number four. Lincoln Sudbury is seven and one at number five. Methuen at six and two is sixth. Springfield Cathedral is seven and one. BC High is five and three at number eight. Taunton is 5-3 at number 9. Central Catholic is 3-5 at number 10. Natick is 5-3 at number 11. Weymouth is 6-2, ranked number 12. Franklin is 5-3, ranked number 13. Westford Academy is 5-3, ranked 14. St. John's is 3-5, ranked 15th. And Lemonster is rounding out Division I's field at 4-4, four and four, ranked 16th. In Division II, the field, King Philip is 8-0, number 1. Catholic Memorial, CM, is 5-2 at number 2. Marshfield is 6-2, my home where I live, number 3 at 6-2 on the season. Peabody Veterans are 8-0 and, oh, and number 4. Barnstable is 7-1. Bishop Fian is 6-1. They are ranked 5th and 6th. Wellesley is 4-4, four four, number 7. North Andover is 5-2, number 8. Winchester is 7-1, number 9. Belmont, 5-3, number 10. Concord Carlisle, 4-4, four four, number 11. North Quincy, 3-5, number 12. Arlington, 3-5, number 13. Plymouth North, doesn't have their their uh, their uh, win loss totals. They're number fourteen though. Cambridge Ringe and Latin is number fifteen with a five and three record. And Diamond Regional Vocational Technical is three and five, and is in Division Two as number sixteen. So when and where do the Cape Locals play? Number twelve North Quincy plays at a home game for number five Barnstable. 
and that's Friday at 6.30 p.m. Division three, the field. Milford is 7-1, ranked first. Bill Rickham Memorial is 7-1, number two. Milton is 5-3, number three. Walpole's 5-3, number four. Mansfield's 5-3, number five. Dartmouth's 8-0, number six. Woburn Memorial is 6-2, number seven. West Springfield 7-0, number eight. North Attleboro's 3-5, number nine. Westfield 7-1, number 10. Doherty Memorial 7-1, number 11. Westboro's 7-1, number 12. Hingham is 3-5, number 13. Minichog is 5-2, number 14. Plymouth South is 5-3, number 15. Stoughton is 5-3, rounding out the field for Division 3, number 16. In Division 4, the field. Duxbury 6-1, number 1. Holliston 5-3, number 2. Middleborough 6-2, number 3. Tewksbury Memorial, 5-3, number 4. Norwood, 6-2, number 5. Grafton, 6-2, number 6. Situate, 5-3, number 7. Somerset Berkeley, 6-2, number 8. Westwood, 6-2, number 9. Wayland, 6-2, number 10 in Division 4. South High Community, 6-2, number 11. Burlington, 5-3, number 12. Canton, 5-3, 13. Marblehead 3 and 4 ranked 14, Ashland 4 and 4 ranked 15, and Bedford 5 and 3 ranked 16. Division 5, the field. Hanover 8 and 0, number 1. Foxborough 7 and 1, number 2. Shawshine Valley Tech 7 and 0, number 3. Dedham 6 and 2, number 4. Danvers 5 and 3, number 5. Old Rochester Regional Four and four, number six. Newburyport, seven and one, number seven. Norton, six and one, number eight. Bishop Stang, three and five, number nine. Auburn, five and three, number ten. North Middlesex Regional, six and two, number eleven. Blackstone Valley Regional Vocational Technical, four and three, number twelve. Aponiquet Regional, three and five, number thirteen. Belchertown. 7-1, and one, number 14. Wilmington, 4-4, four four, number 15. Gloucester, 5-3, number 16. Division 6, the field. Norwell, 7-1, number 1. Abington, 6-2, number 2. Salem, 6-2, number 3. Hudson, 6-2, number 4. Linfield, 7-1, number 5. Cardinal Spellman, 6-2, number 6. Maynard, 7-1, Number seven, Fairhaven, seven and one. Number eight, Winthrop, five and three. Number nine, Bellingham is five and three and ranked number ten. St. Mary's is six and two, eleventh. Swamscut is five and three, ranked twelfth. Sandwich is four and four, ranked thirteenth. Dennis Yarmouth is ranked fourteenth at six and two, and Stoneham is ranked fifteenth at four and four. Baypath Regional Vocational Technical. 6-2, ranked 16th. When and where do the Cape Locals play? Number 13 Sandwich is at number 4 Hudson on Friday at 7 p.m. Number 14 Dennis Yarmouth is at number 3 Salem Friday at 7 p.m. Division 7, 
The Field, Uxbridge is 8-0, number one. Cohasset's 4-3, number two. West Bridgewater's 6-2, number three. Rockland is 5-3, number four. Clinton is 4-4, number five. Amesbury is 6-1, number six. Mashpee is 5-3 at number seven, and Tingsboro is 6-2 at number eight. Gardner is 8-0, number nine. Blue Hills Regional is number 10. They don't give their record. Wakona Regional is 5-3 at number 11. South Shore Tech is 5-3 at number 12. Millbury is 5-3 at 13. South Hadley is 7-1 at 14. Manchester Essex is 5-3 at 15. And Oxford is 5-3 at 16. And when and where do the Cape Locals play? Well, that'll be number 10, Blue Hills Regional, at number 7, Mashpee, on Friday at 7 p.m. So that's a home game for Mashpee. And finally, Division 8, the field. West Boylston's 8-0, they're number 1. Carver's 8-0, they're number 2. Hoosack Valley's 8-0, they're number 3. Cathedral's 5-2, they're number 4. Ware is 8-0, they're number 5. Old Colony Regional is 7-1, they're number 6. Kip Academy, Lynn is 6-2, they're number 7. Blackstone Millville is 7-1, they're number 8. Neshoba Valley Tech is 5-3, they're number 9. Sutton is 6-2, they're number 10. Narragansett Regionals, 5-3, they're number 11. Randolph is 3-4, they're number 12. Bourne is 6-2, ranked 13th. Athol is 5-3, they're ranked 14th. Franklin County Tech is 6-2, they're ranked 15th, and Brighton at 4-3 is ranked 16th. When and where do the Cape locals play? Number 13, Bourne, is at number 4, Cathedral. They'll have their work cut out for them Friday at 7 p.m. There are some non-playoff matchups. Oliver Ames is at Nauset. Falmouth is at Martha's Vineyard. Nantucket's at Bristol. St. John Paul II is at Cape Tech, Upper Cape, uh, Cape Tech, sorry, there are no commas here, so these are, <laughs> these are difficult to read right now. Upper Cape is at Atlantis Charter, and Seekonk is at Monomoy. So an awful lot of uh, listing going on there. And again, if you would like to hear any of that again, Lord knows why you would, but if you did, you could always go to audiblelocalledger.org, the archived readings tabs. And that concludes our local news for today. Here's a little business advice from the Cape Cod Times and Bailey Schultz, whose headline reads, Don't be too emotional about stock market dips. If you're taking a nervous peek at your 401k following the stock market's recent plunge, you're not alone. The S&P 500 ended last week down more than 10% from its most recent high in July, which put the stock index in correction territory. That's a worrying milestone for millions of Americans who invest in one of the many mutual funds that use the index as a benchmark, mirroring its performance. The index, which includes 500 of the leading publicly traded companies in the U.S., ended at 4,117 0.37 on Friday. That's down 10.3% from its recent peak July 31st. The tech-heavy NASDAQ composite index, which entered correction territory earlier in the week, closed at 12,643 
0.01. Stocks have fallen the past three months as investors face the reality of higher interest rates, with Federal Reserve officials talking about keeping rates higher for longer. While the plunge in the S&P 500 may have people fretting over their 401k's performance, market experts say investors should keep in mind that dips are often short-lived. On Monday, in fact, investors appeared more optimistic, pushing up major stock indexes. Although the last three months haven't been much fun for investors, it's important to remember that corrections are normal, and they happen quite often, said Ryan Dietrich, chief market strategist at financial services firm Carson Group. What is correction territory? Corrections take place when a market experiences a drop of at least 10% from its most recent peak. That's a sign that investors are skeptical of what lies ahead for stocks. It's more severe than a pullback, which is typically a short-lived drop of less than 10%. But not quite a bear market. That's a drop of 20% or more, and that can result in significant losses for investors. Corrections take place every couple of years on average, including during the bull run between 2009 and 2020. Why has the stock market fallen? The plunge comes as soaring treasury yields make bonds more appealing for investors who are getting out of stocks now that the 10-year bond recently exceeded 5%, and that's the first time since 2007. And amid various economic and geopolitical concerns like the escalating tensions in the Middle East, Dietrich said that while the recent weakness has hurt stocks, investors should remember that between January and July, the S&P 500 notched its best first seven-month performance at the start of a new year since 1997, and that some type of give-back wasn't overly surprising. But what does it mean for my 401k? Investors should remember how quickly the market tends to recover, according to Sam Stovall, chief investment strategist at investment research and analytics firm CFRA Research. He said pullbacks tend to take about a month and a half to get back to break even. Corrections take about four months, and bear markets with a drop between 20 and 40 percent take 13 months. Will the stock market recover? The phrase anyone should keep in mind is, This too shall pass. If an investor doesn't have 13 months, they probably shouldn't own stocks. We've exhausted our local news and have moved into the national news. On the front page of today's Cape Cod Times, the headline reads, Israeli ground invasion pushes deeper into Gaza. Russia blames riot on outside interference by John Bacon, Trevor Hughes, and... Jorge L. Ortiz of USA Today. Israel's ground invasion of the Gaza Strip intensified Monday amid pockets of resistance from Palestinians who refused repeated Israeli orders to evacuate. Fierce clashes took place as Israeli forces penetrated deep into northern Gaza near Beit Lahia, a city of 90,000, the Palestinian media outlet Al Ayam reported. The Israeli military said its forces were pushing into the territory and countering militants attempting to launch anti-tank missiles and mortar shells. Dozens of those militants were killed, the Israelis said. The objective of this war require a ground operation, the Israeli military chief of staff Herzi Halevi said. The best soldiers are now operating in Gaza. 
The death toll among Palestinians passed 8,000, mostly women and minors, according to the Gaza Health Ministry. That could not be independently verified. More than 1,400 Israelis have died, most of them in the first few hours of the October 7th massacre on border communities by Hamas militants. At least 32 of those dead are Americans, according to the U.S. State Department. The number of Israelis who have evacuated homes and communities near the Gaza border has surpassed 250,000, Israeli officials said. In a Sunday morning call, President Joe Biden and Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu discussed Israel's right to defend itself and the need to do so while protecting civilians in Gaza, according to a readout. They also talked about the efforts to locate hostages and gain their release, the White House said. Hamas and other militants are believed to be holding about 220 captives, with Americans among them, most likely in different locations. The leaders also covered the topic of aid coming into Gaza, which Biden has said is not happening as much as he'd like. The president underscored the need to immediately and significantly increase the flow of humanitarian assistance to meet the needs of civilians in Gaza, the readout said. The UN Security Council scheduled an emergency meeting Monday at the request of the United Arab Emirates to discuss the humanitarian plight of Palestinians. Although almost a million have heeded warnings from Israel and fled northern Gaza, hundreds of thousands remain. Many refuse to leave. Others are unable to. The UN warned Israeli airstrikes in northern Gaza were hitting close to hospitals where more than 100,000 displaced people are staying amid thousands of patients and staff, all hoping that the hospitals will be safe from the airstrikes. It's also where Hamas is reportedly hiding and using civilians as shields. The Vatican seeks a two-state solution and an end to, va- to violence. The Vatican on Monday called for a two-state solution to the Palestinian homeland issue and urged both sides to avoid escalating the war. Archbishop Paul Richard Gallagher, the Vatican's secretary for relations with states, told Iranian Foreign Minister Hossein Amir Abdullahian that the Pope had serious concerns about the war. Iran had requested the phone conversation, the Vatican said. Archbishop Gallagher expressed the Holy See's serious concern about what is happening in Israel and Palestine, reiterating the absolute necessity to avoid escalating the conflict and to achieve a two-state solution for a stable and lasting peace in the Middle East, the Vatican said in a statement. Russia blames outside interference for airport riot. Meanwhile, Russian presidential spokesman Dmitry Peskov on Monday blamed outside interference and quote-unquote external information for the upheaval at Russia's airport in the predominantly Muslim region of Dagestan. Russian news reports said protesters shouted anti-Semitic slogans and tried to storm the plane belonging to Russian carrier Red Wings, prompting police in Makachkala to close the airport. Video on social media showed protesters attempting to overturn a police car, some on the landing field waving Palestinian flags, others checking the passports of passengers who had arrived in Makachkala from Tel Aviv. More than 20 people were injured, too critically, Dagestan's health ministry said. The injured included police officers and civilians. 
At least 60 people were detained in the unrest, the local interior ministry said. It was not clear if charges were filed against any of them, but Russia's investigative committee said it opened a criminal probe on charges of organizing mass unrest. Peskov said TV footage showed Israel's bombing of Gaza and the deaths of civilians, children, elderly people, and medics, which made it very easy for the ill-wishers to take advantage of the situation for provocations and instigation, Russian state media outlet TASS reported. Russian President Vladimir Putin called a meeting of his top security and law enforcement officials on Monday to discuss attempts by the West to use the events in the Middle East to divide the Russian society, Peskov said. Netanyahu's office said in a statement that Israel expects the Russian law enforcement authorities to protect the safety of all Israeli citizens and Jews wherever they may be and to act resolutely against the rioters and against the wild incitement directed against Jews and Israelis. Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky, whose country has been fighting a Russian invasion since February of 2022, tweeted that anti-Semitic sentiment is common in Russia and it emanates from its leaders. This is not an isolated incident in Makhachkala, Zelensky said, but rather part of Russia's widespread culture of hatred toward other nations, which is propagated by state television, pundits, and authorities. In the U.S., campus police were sent to Cornell University's Center for Jewish Living after horrendous anti-Semitic messages threatening violence appeared on a discussion board Sunday, University President Martha Pollack said in a statement. The University Police Department is investigating, and it's notified the FBI of a potential hate crime, she said. Pollack urged the campus community to work together to reinforce a culture of trust, respect, and safety at the Ivy League school located in Ithaca, New York, more than 200 miles northwest of New York City. We will not tolerate anti-Semitism at Cornell, Pollock said. The virulence and destructiveness of anti-Semitism is real and deeply impacting our Jewish students, faculty, and staff, as well as the entire Cornell community. We will close out our reading after that rather sad update with a little bit of advice from our friend Ask Carolyn. Dear Carolyn, my first child's due next month and my close friends don't have children. How do I avoid becoming one of those parents child-free people complain about who suddenly no longer have the time or interest to sustain a friendship that doesn't revolve around their kids? Signed, Expecting. Expecting. Well, number one, congratulations. Number two, find a good sitter. See your friends without your child always in tow unless it's necessary. A small child requires attention. Axiomatic. Asking your friends to give you their social attention while your attention, actually or conversationally, is entirely on your child? Well, that's not fair, unless they encourage you to do it. Number three, not dissing child-free people really helps. A reader's thought. My friends and I have an unspoken agreement. I show or or feign, if need be, interest in their kid-related issues, and they feign interest in my non-kid-related problems, even though I'm sure they seem trivial by comparison. I respect that their parenthood requires extra flexibility from me, and they respect my lack of interest in being a parent. See if you can come to a similar spoken 
or unspoken arrangement with your friends. And with that good advice, we will leave you on Halloween, Tuesday, October 31st of 2023. Hope you all have a spooktacular evening. This is your reader, Eric, saying be well, be safe, look after each other. Remember our veterans. Bye for now.